This is available as a podcast and a webinar. This conference will now be recorded. Frank, good afternoon and welcome to our session on orders of protection, firearms and updates. We are privileged to have Kay Radwanski uh, presenting. Kay is our go-to person at the Supreme Court, uh, the administrative courts on uh, protective order issues. Uh, She's presented for us before and and it's just terrific to have her. Uh, She has practiced in South, uh, in New Jersey, uh, and um, again, just our, our resident expert on protective order matters. Uh, so we're, we're pleased to have her. And if, if that, I'll give it to Kay. Yeah, you can ask questions in the chat box. You can turn your microphone to ask questions. Uh, otherwise, please be muted. Thank you, Judge Adernetto. I'm Kay Rudwanski. I'm the domestic violence specialist at the Arizona Supreme Court. I've been there 15 years, so I have some experience in this subject area, but if there's something I don't know and you have a question about it, I'll help find the answer. There are some materials that were provided today in addition to the PowerPoint. You should have received a PDF version of a booklet that has the most current state and federal statutes. Our POP rules and protective order forms. I would say that with the caveat that those are current as of today, but you also have a copy of House Bill 2604, which will bring some changes to the rules and the forms, but we'll talk a little bit more about that. So first let's start with the legislative update. Today is the 135th day of the current legislative session. The legislature is supposed to finish its work in 100 days. Obviously, they've missed that mark. So each week, each house has to authorize an extension of the session by a week. So we're we're still going. House Bill 2604 is the main bill that we're talking about this session. This is a bill that has passed into law. The governor has signed it, and it will take effect at some point. The main parts of this bill are that any order of protection served, and the important word here is served, on or after the effective date of the legislation will be in effect for two years from date of service. Another part of this bill is that any emergency order of protection issued on or after the effective date will be in effect for seven calendar days from the date of issuance. So the order of protection piece is based on date of service, The emergency order protection is based on date of issuance. When is the general effective date? That's a a good question. Technically, it's 90 days from sine die, the date that the legislature adjourns. And when will the legislature adjourn? That's the question of the day. We're guessing right now they'll adjourn sometime in mid-June, so uh, the effective date will be sometime in September. Just not sure about that yet. And until they actually officially adjourn, we just don't know. So let's think about this. What if an order of protection is issued today but is served after the general effective date? 
based on House Bill 2604. It will expire two years from the date of service. And here's another, but what if? What if an order of protection is issued and served the day before the general effective date of the legislation? That will be a one-year order of protection because it expires one year from the date of service. We expect that there will be some confusion during the first year that this bill is in effect until we weed out the, the one-year orders, but you're gonna have to pay close attention to that date of service in the first year. So what we're gonna do form so that defendants have notice, we're preparing the order of protection form changes right now because we wanna be able to roll this out as soon as we know when the legislature adjourns. So we're planning to put some language on there that any order served on or after the mystery effective date will be effect, in effect for two years from the date of service and any order served prior to that mystery date will be a one-year order. So we wanna make sure that courts have time to implement this. So we'll try to get this out as soon as we can, right after we know the effective legislative date. So the old form will go away and the new one will take its place. What about a modified order? When does a modified order expire? You're gonna to have to look back to the date of service of the original order to figure that out. So if it's a one-year order, the modified order will expire one year from the original date of service. If it's a two-year order, a modified order will expire two years from that date of service. Any questions I, about that? Yeah, Kay, uh, and, and this is a silly question, but why didn't the legislature, instead of uh, making that the date of service, make it the date of issuance? Because uh, we, we can have an, have an order of protection that is issued today that does not have that two-year language on it um, that doesn't get served. Okay. Uh, it's not likely, but it's possible it doesn't get served until after the um, uh, general effective date, and it will incorrectly state that it is valid for only one year. Right, and that will be a problem if a prosecutor needs to prosecute a defendant or wants to prosecute a defendant for violating that order. That prosecution would likely fail because the defendant wouldn't have appropriate notice. I think from a technical standpoint, the date of service was easier to program, um, but you know the legislature does what it does. So, I think from a, a technical aspect, they were looking at the service date because we have to transmit these to NCIC and it would be easier that way. But we recognize that there will be some confusion initially. <clears throat> so sorry, I don't have a good answer for that one. What about the injunctions? Nothing has changed about the injunctions and their duration. The injunctions against harassment, the injunctions against workplace harassment will still be good for only one year from date of service. So no changes there. And as I said, the emergency order of protection will expire seven days from issuance. So this, this one is in effect from issuance. An emergency order of protection does 
uh, allow for a firearms prohibition if the defendant, if, if there's reason to believe the defendant might inflict harm on the plaintiff and the defendant has no right to a contested hearing on an emergency order of protection. Initially, when this bill rolled out, the, the proposal was that this would last for 30 days. We pointed out some obvious due process problems with that because the defendant could be excluded from their home, could be a prohibited possessor and would have no recourse against that protective order. So uh, some negotiation was done. It was suggested at our end that maybe five days would be sufficient, but the legislature went for seven. So there you have it. So are there any questions about the legislation? No questions on that one? Okay, so let's turn to the RPOP rules, specifically Rule 38D. In late 2021, the Supreme Court adopted a rule change to Rule 38 that allows a plaintiff to file a supplement to petition. This rule took effect January 1st of 2022. And the question is, after an ex parte order has been issued, when can a plaintiff amend the petition? And the answer to that question is only at a contested hearing. There was a proposal originally filed by the University of Arizona Law School that would allow the plaintiff to amend any time that they wanted. And that was a concern because how would that petition get served. We didn't want law enforcement to have to go out and serve petitions that weren't going to result in a contested hearing. So we we did some talking to the original rule petition filers and got them to agree that <clears throat> the appropriate time if there's going to be an amended petition would be at a contested hearing when you've got both parties present. What additional events can the plaintiff allege? <clears throat> These have to be, <clears throat> excuse me, events that occurred before the ex parte order was issued. It's very clear on the form that, that we created that courts must have available for plaintiffs that this cannot be allegations that happened after the ex parte order was issued, only events that occurred before. So, <clears throat> the concern is that events that happened after the ex parte order was issued are possible violations of the ex parte order that plaintiffs should report to law enforcement. The bigger problem with allowing that would be violations of the Fifth Amendment. A defendant can't be compelled to testify about events that might put them at risk of self-incrimination. So these subsequent events, if they are violations of the protective order, would certainly put the defendant in that position. So it can only be events that occurred before the original order was issued. So it's, it's clear on the form. Is, is there some concern that that's not sufficiently clear in the rule? Well, the, the form does actually say um, any events you add must have occurred before you applied for the protective order. Right. And, and uh, not issued, but applied. Yeah, the uh, we've had several judges um, who are concerned that that is not what the rule says. The rule doesn't have a limitation. 
Well, the, the rule has that same intent. If there's a concern that the rule is not sufficiently clear, rules can be amended. Um, I, I haven't heard that it was a concern, but this has only been in effect for five months. Are you seeing a lot of supplements to petitions at contested hearings? I don't know how often this is happening. Uh, I'll, I'll let one of the other judges address that. Judge Williams, Judge Huberman, have you had many? I haven't had many. It, it is a little perhaps frustrating that the only place you can find the limitation that the order, that the supplementary petition has to be based on things that happened prior um, is in the, in, in the instruction section of the form. That's, I don't think that's anywhere in the rule. I could be mistaken. Maybe the maybe the, the rule had that intent, but that's not what the rule actually says. Yeah, that that definitely was the intention. And if if it's fuzzy, we can look at, at proposing an amendment to that. We'll be looking at the rule petition for RPOP anyway because of House Bill 2604. So that would be an opportunity to fix that if we need to. I mean, I think this happens often that we that we deal with rules that say something and we're told that the intent was narrower than what the rule says. I mean, I that that's how it should be. I don't agree that we should allow people to add things that happened after it was issued, but um, the fact is that we're dealing with a written rule that says um, so yeah, maybe maybe clarifying it would be an option. But it's I I've only had I think one case uh, that that I've been. I don't know if others in my court have seen it that that uh, we added it to the petition, and then once that I told the person that if they wanted to add it, they needed to amend the petition, and they just didn't want to go through that issue, so they didn't do it. Mm -hmm. So well, there, there's, I mean, there's a separate form for the supplement to petition. Right, but I mean, it's a complicated process. It means to stop what you're doing and write, write again what you're adding. And, and I think, I don't know that, that litigants are too keen on doing that, but that's just my experience. Mm -hmm. Okay. But I, I made a note of that particular RPOP rule. And, I staff the Supreme Court's Committee on the Impact of Domestic Violence in the Court, and I'll bring that to their attention that there's some concern that the rule isn't as clear as, as it was intended to be. But you do have to be concerned about violations of the Fifth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, Article Two of the Arizona Constitution. Uh, even in civil matters, a defendant has the right to invoke uh, the Fifth Amendment and the article two and not incriminate themselves in a criminal matter so if a plaintiff wants to add events that happened after that ex parte order was issued that's a problem because that would be a violation of that ex parte order so you, you don't want to allow defendants to get into trouble that way so if you are seeing a rule 38d request you need to provide a copy of the supplement to petition form to the plaintiff on their request 
and then you have to immediately provide a copy of that to the defendant. And then the defendant is given three choices. They can ask for a continuance to another day. They could ask for a, a brief recess to prepare for these additional allegations, or they could waive the continuance or the brief recess and just continue with the hearing that day. So that's what the rule tells you to offer. So any, any questions about Rule 38D before we move on to firearms? We've allowed some extra time today because usually I'm rushing through orders of protection and firearms. So please think of the questions that you have about these things because we've got lots of time. So we're going to talk about Arizona law first. When under Arizona law can firearms be prohibited on an order of protection? And the, the statutory site is 1830, is, is, sorry, getting mixed up with my federal already, 133602G4. That's the provision that allows you to prohibit firearms on an order of protection. What is required is that there be a finding that the defendant is a credible threat to the plaintiff's safety. You can prohibit the possession or purchase of a firearm. You can order this at an ex parte or a contested hearing. And this applies to any qualifying relationship, any, any of the relationships that qualify a person for an order of protection. So that's a fairly substantial group. So let's look at that. Those are people who are married to each other now or in the past. One party is pregnant by the other party. They have been household residents now or in the past. This does not have to be intimate partners. It could be roommates, relatives, other folks that are living in the same house. Related by blood or marriage, and this is a, a limited category like parents, grandparents, um, brothers and sisters. It, it doesn't extend to aunts, uncles, cousins, <clears throat> but the more immediate relatives. These are folks who are in a romantic or sexual relationship, people who have a child in common, and then there's a provision for child victims. So we've got seven categories of people who qualify for orders of protection and to whom the 133602G4 provision would also apply. Under Arizona law, the defendant must transfer weapons within 24 hours to a designated law enforcement agency. So there's a blank on the face of the order of protection where you should be filling in the name of that agency. Under the Arizona statute, there's no exception for the defendant to carry duty weapons. This would apply to military and law enforcement primarily. The prohibition is effective from the date the order of protection is served and it expires when the order of protection expires or is dismissed. So that's the state firearms prohibition. On the second page of the order of protection, there's a checkbox. It clearly says Arizona firearms law. It has the site to the statute. Yet folks frequently confuse this with Brady. This is not Brady. This is the state firearms prohibition. And here you see that there's space to put in the name of the agency to which the defendant should transfer those firearms. There are a few other ways that firearms can be prohibited outside of an order of protection. 
For example, ARS 133601, paragraph C through F, a defendant can be arrested at the scene of a domestic violence incident. Law enforcement can seize a firearm and hold it up to six months. The defendant does have a right to a hearing in a case where that firearm has been seized. If the defendant is arrested, the judge can set release conditions that also include a provision to not possess firearms. And that prohibition can last for as long as the criminal case lasts. And then finally, somebody who's been convicted of a of domestic violence violation and has been placed on probation is a prohibited possessor. This is 133107 and 133102, and that's for the term of probation. So those are other ways under state law that a person can be a prohibited possessor. Any questions about the state law before we move on to the federal? No questions? Okay, so the next question is under federal law, when can firearms be prohibited because of an order of protection? So that brings us to 18 USC 922 G8, which is Brady. Brady is part of the Federal Gun Control Act. There are nine categories of people under the Brady Pro or under the Federal Gun Control Act to whom uh, a firearms prohibition can apply. For example, convicted felons, a fugitive from justice, someone who's an unlawful user or addicted to controlled substances, somebody who's been adjudicated mentally ill, illegal aliens, somebody who's been dishonorably discharged from the military, a person who has renounced their US citizenship. Those folks are also prohibited possessors under this 18 USC 922. And there are two more pieces of that that we're going to talk about specifically people who are subject to a protective order and people who are convicted of a qualifying domestic violence misdemeanor. So let's look first at the people who are under a protective order. If a protect order of protection is affirmed or modified at a contested hearing, then federal law Brady specifically may apply. But you know, as, as you hear in the TV advertisements, there could be conditions. So first, they have to be intimate partners, and we're, we're going to talk about what that means. Second, certain due process elements are required. Third, the order must restrain the person's conduct. And then on the face of the order, there must either be explicit language prohibiting the use of force, or there can be a credible threat finding. We're going to go through those one by one. First of all, who are intimate partners? These are people who are married to each other now or in the past, parents of a child in common, and people who cohabit intimately with each other now or in the past. So here we're only looking at three groups of people where when we were looking at the orders of protection and the state firearms prohibition, we were talking about seven different groups. So we've got a much narrower group here. So Brady is not going to apply in every contested hearing in which you affirm or modify an order of protection. Next, let's talk about what due process is required. The order is issued after a hearing. 
So that tells you we have to have a contested hearing or we have to have a pre-issuance hearing. We have to have some sort of hearing to which the defendant has been invited. And it has actual notice. That means they, they showed up at court or they came and requested the hearing and were given a, a time and a date to appear by the court staff. They, they know they're supposed to show up that day and they have an opportunity to participate. So that's the due process that's required. One of the questions that I often am asked is, what is a hearing? And there is federal law that guides us from the Ninth Circuit, U.S. versus Young. It's basically a proceeding of which the defendant has actual notice and an opportunity to be heard. That's, that's fairly simple. It doesn't require that evidence has been offered. It doesn't require that witnesses have to be called. So it's, it's not a lot of formality wrapped around this. But one of the questions that I'm often asked is, when can a defendant withdraw the request for a contested hearing? The statute only gives the defendant one opportunity for a contested hearing. So occasionally I, I hear, and I heard this recently, where a judge in the middle of the hearing that the defendant had requested, <clears throat> after the parties had been sworn, after the judge looked at some evidence that the plaintiff's attorney was going to uh, put forward, the judge allowed the defendant to withdraw the request for the hearing. There was a recording made of, of the hearing that wasn't a hearing. And of course, the plaintiff and the plaintiff's attorney were very upset about this because the, the person's right to another contested hearing was also preserved. So this, this plaintiff was forced into court, was sworn in, had an attorney, and yet in the middle of the hearing, the, the defendant was allowed to withdraw the hearing request. So I, I hope that was a rare one-off situation that because I still haven't wrapped my head around how a defendant can withdraw the re <clears throat> hearing request in the middle of the hearing that the defendant asked for. And it makes me wonder, should the judge be advising a defendant to withdraw a hearing? This comes up particularly with the, the firearms prohibition. If you've got intimate partners and you have a feeling this order is going to be affirmed or modified and the defendant doesn't want to lose guns, should the defendant be allowed in the middle of that hearing to withdraw that request? <clears throat> or if they think it might give them some advantage in a family law case, if, if they don't go forward with this hearing. Um, in, in this case, it, it was seemed fairly egregious just based on, on what I was told. And this so far is not the subject of an appeal, um, but it, it was very concerning because the plaintiff had to the, the plaintiff had actually asked for a continuance to get time off from work, and that was denied. Asked for time to get an attorney, that was denied. Finally found an attorney, uh, was denied attorney fees for the, the hearing that wasn't, and was pulled back into court and potentially may have to go back to court on that same case again. So that was very concerning. Uh, Kay, what about, because uh, for contested hearing, you generally are thinking of the defendant requesting the hearing, 
what if the order of protection has been served and then the plaintiff files a motion to modify, uh, which must be set for a hearing? Is that a contested hearing? Does that that would be that a contested a hearing? So even but, though but, the so then well, a sad if, if the plaintiff. If the defendant hasn't appeared in the case, let's say the defendant has been served but has made no hearing request, you can modify that order uh, without notice to the defendant, without inviting them to the hearing because they haven't really appeared. If you've already had a contested hearing or the defendant has already asked for a contested hearing, then they have appeared. So then that would be considered a contested hearing. So there, there are kind of two situations. You have to look at whether any, whether anything more than service on the defendant occurred. If the defendant accepted service of the order and was not seen or heard from again, then you can modify the order all day long without requiring the defendant's presence. It's only if there's already been a contested hearing or the defendant has requested a contested hearing that has not occurred yet. That would be a contested hearing. A pre-issuance hearing is a contested hearing because the court has invited the defendant to participate. So I would tread carefully when setting pre-issuance hearings, particularly if the parties are intimate partners under the federal definition, because then, then you're kind of setting up the defendant for that Brady thing. Does that make sense? Any questions about that one? No. The other two parts of Brady are kind of taken care of for you on the form. What conduct must be restrained? The defendant cannot harass, stalk, or threaten the intimate partner or a child of the intimate partner. This language is printed on the face of every order of protection that's issued in Arizona. So check mark, that one is done. The fourth one is the one that causes confusion because there's a little two letter word there called or. Uh, the statute, federal statute says the order must contain explicit language that prohibits the use, attempted use, or threatened use of physical force, or the court must make a credible threat finding. You don't have to do both. And the explicit language is printed on the front of every Arizona order of protection. So elements three and four are taken care of for you. When you're considering whether Brady applies in a situation, what you need to do is look at the relationship between the parties. Do they meet one of those three federal definitions? And then you need to check and see if the defendant had actual notice and an opportunity to participate. If they've appeared at court on the day of your contested hearing, obviously actual notice is checked off because they're there. If let's say a notice was mailed to the defendant and the defendant doesn't appear, then you, you, you can't be sure that there was actual notice because the postal service might not have delivered the mail, the defendant might not have opened the mail. Actual notice means that, that the person actually knows. If I tell you that in five minutes, um, you know, there's going to be a, a fire drill in, in your courthouse. I just gave you actual notice. I didn't need to send you anything in writing. I just told you that. But if we have a defendant who shows up because they got the notice, they came to court and asked for the hearing, 
actual notices checked off. If they don't show up, you might have to do a little more checking to, to see what kind of notice was sent or that sort of thing. But it's probably not going to stand up as easily if they don't appear. Of course, on the other hand, if, if they've requested a contested hearing and then they don't show up, Rule 38 allow, or tells you that you need to keep the order in place. So the plaintiff has taken the time and effort to get there. Rule 38 breaks down the situations where if the defendant requests a contested hearing and fails to appear, what you should do in that situation. Uh, if the plaintiff doesn't appear but had actual notice, then you can dismiss the order. If neither party shows up for court, then you keep the order in place. That part of Rule 38 came into effect a couple years ago. This is the notice of Brady indicator form. If you have somebody who's an intimate partner and you've had the contested hearing and you've confirmed that the due process elements have been met, then what you do is, is fill out this form, check off those top two boxes. There are no check boxes for elements three and four because they're not necessary. Those are on the form and sign it and date that and give a copy to each party. I would note that unlike the Arizona statute, when somebody is subject to a Brady prohibition, there is a, an exception for law enforcement and military to carry their duty weapon. That's not available under state law, but that is available under the federal law, particularly for Brady for 18 USC 922 G8. So moving on, what does the defendant need to know? What, what if you don't tell the defendant that he or she is a Brady prohibitive possessor? Uh, the US Supreme Court in Rahafe versus UF, US and also US versus Kafka says that what the defendant needs to know is A, that the defendant is subject to a protective order. So if the defendant was at the contested hearing, they know they're sub subject to a contested or to a protective order if you kept that order in effect. And they also need to know that they're possessing a firearm. They don't have to know that they're a prohibited possessor. They just need to know that they're subject to that protective order and that thing in their hand or their waistband or in the glove compartment or under the car seat or wherever it is, is a gun. And that's it. And I'll tell you the story of Mr. Kafka. He was a resident of Washington state. He was subject to a, a, con a protective order out of one of the state courts there. The order was taken out by his ex-wife. There was a contested hearing, he was present. He, he knew he was subject to a protective order. Nobody mentioned guns to him at all. Seven or eight months later, he stopped in a, a traffic stop and he tells the officer, by the way, I'm carrying a loaded handgun. Well, Mr. Kafka is now a, a convicted felon under federal law. Even though he didn't know he was not to carry that gun, he knew he was subject to a protective order. He knew that thing was a firearm. So, um, that's the, the sad story of Mr. Kafka. Um, better to tell somebody that they're subject to this than to send them out into the world not knowing. Because the violations for Brady are pretty steep. 
these would be the, the maximum penalties, 10 years in federal prison and a $250,000 fine. So that's pretty steep. I don't know how often federal authorities prosecute people for Brady violations, but I, I think it's in their best interest not to be sent out into the world uh, innocently thinking that they can possess firearms when in fact they can't. It's kind of unfair too, um, to not give them notice about this. So on the face of the order of protection, on the defendant's guide sheet that is served with the order of protection, on the hearing request form that a, a defendant uses to request a contested hearing, we have warnings about Brady. This is part of the fair warning doctrine under the Violence Against Women Act. So we do attempt to let defendants know that a firearms prohibition is a possibility that they might want to speak to an attorney if they have any questions or concerns about that. So are there any questions about Brady? We do have a question in the chat box that um, what if you don't find a credible threat? Does Brady apply? Yes. If the parties are intimate partners and if the defendants do process uh, rights have been observed because that little subsection of Brady says either there's an explicit or there's explicit language on the order of protection or there's a credible threat finding. That explicit language is on the face of every Arizona order of protection. So you don't need to make a credible threat finding for Brady to apply. You only need the credible threat finding if you're applying the Arizona law. Okay, that, that's the thing that causes the most confusion because the federal language and the state language on credible threat are fairly similar, except that the federal law has the little conjunction or either explicit language or a credible threat finding. One or the other, you don't need both. Okay. You guys are going to have to come up with some more questions or we're going to have a lot of empty silence here. I, I, I have a question. You, you raised okay. something that I never thought of. Yeah. All right. Good. What about you? It's just been one of those days. You, I keep hearing. <laughs> okay. I, I, have, I have a question. You, you raised something I'd never thought of before in, in your remarks. Um, my first thought when I heard that orders of protection were going to be in effect for two years rather than one year was wow i wonder if that's going to trigger a lot more judges wanting to set up hearing before issuance because the stakes are slightly higher um the standard mm -hmm. is the same but the stakes are slightly higher and then you pointed out that if we set a hearing before issuance under the theory that we might be protecting the defendant because we want the defendant's side of the story, we're actually potentially harming the defendant by setting the hearing because that triggers Brady. I, I guess I, I was just curious as to your thoughts on those two things. Well, the, this, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I agree with you. If, if you want to hear the defendant's side of things, then you, you, you can set a pre-issuance hearing. But if the parties are, are intimate partners under the federal definition, 
you're inviting the defendant into the courthouse and potentially that person could end up as a Brady prohibited possessor. If, if they're married now or in the past, have a child in common or intimate partners now or in the past. So you, you might wanna give some thought to whether you really do want that pre-issuance hearing. Now, if it's a, a feud between the neighbors or it's a feud in the household between the roommates or the relatives, then Brady's not going to apply to those classifications of people. It's only going to apply to the intimate partners. So that, that's something that you might wanna think about. Um, with a two-year order, if there's a firearms prohibition, it's going to be a two-year firearms prohibition too. So that's that's something to definitely give some consideration to. You know, I, I've talked to some judges that set a pre-issuance hearing for every petition for an order of protection. And I don't know how many defendants ended up as Brady prohibited possessors. You have to determine based on the, the petition in front of you whether you think that pre-issuance hearing is really necessary. The standard for an ex parte order is reasonable cause. That's a, a fairly low legal standard. If the plaintiff can meet that based on the allegations in the petition, then you have to decide whether that's sufficient or do you need to know more? Or let's say that the plaintiff has presented a, a deficient petition, you could deny it and the person could file a new petition. The rules tell us there's no limit on the number of petitions that can be filed. There's no limit on the number of orders that can be granted. And if you look at the language in the statute, the statute actually says that if you're going to deny the petition, then you could set a pre-issuance hearing. The statute doesn't even actually use the word pre-issuance. That's something that we've just kind of come up with to describe this, this hearing after a denial. So the, the way the, the situation works in the court isn't the way the statute is exactly worded because if if you're literally following the statute first you're going to deny the petition and then set a pre-issuance so you you have to consider the options you can issue that order you can deny that order or you can set the pre-issuance if you deny the the plaintiff is not closed out of the court they could work with a victim advocate maybe do a better job writing up their petition or, or, you know, maybe try again at a different court. So it, it's kind of a dicey situation with Brady. Does that answer your question? Yes. The, the other situation I have, it's not so much the uh, bad practice you described of uh, uh, someone withdrawing their hearing request in the middle of a hearing. Um, but if the basis for the order being granted was, say, repeated harassment by text messages and the defendant shows up wearing a Shooter's World t-shirt, um, the parties have broken up, neither one of them want to have anything to do with each other anyway, um, in that situation, I, I would be inclined to advise the defendant that if I keep the order in effect, then there's a chance he'll become a prohibited possessor of firearms. Would he like to withdraw his request for a hearing? And frequently they do. Um, I had an ATF attorney one time tell me that merely requesting the hearing triggers Brady. And so I don't know what your thoughts on that situation are. 
Well, that, that's what I've heard too. And I, I talked to an ATF attorney in, a number of years ago about that because what, what happens when the federal authorities prosecute somebody for a Brady violation is, is they will do a complete investigation of the case before they decide to do that. So they, they would send out their investigators. They would come to your court and look at the hearing records uh, in, in the situation I described, if they looked at that case, they would see that the parties were present at court, that they had been sworn, that a record was created, uh, that the, the judge was reviewing potential evidence, and then the defendant was allowed to withdraw. The federal prosecutors would probably say, based on U.S. versus Young, that there was a hearing, and they, they might proceed with their prosecution. Now, if if they decided that wasn't sufficient, they wouldn't go ahead. But in in the rare cases that I've seen where somebody was prosecuted for Brady, they did their their homework first because they they want to see all those elements. You know, they want to confirm that these parties meet the intimate partner definition. If they don't, then they they won't proceed with that. So they're they're going to look at the record and they're going to decide what's a hearing. Um, to me, it it seems that if if the parties are in the courtroom and the parties have been sworn, we're kind of in a hearing. And I, I think you have to, to walk carefully about what advice you give to the defendant about, you know, do you, do you want to stop this hearing in the middle of the hearing and let's pretend it didn't happen so that you can preserve your gun rights. That's why we try to warn them before they request the hearing that this is how this is going to go. So, you know, you're, you're the judges, you decide how to do it. But if I were the defendant, I, and if I knew as much as I know about this, then I'd, I'd be very nervous about it. Because I, I look at what happened with, with Mr. Kafka up there in Washington State, and, you know, he, 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 he in his mind didn't do anything wrong because nobody told him he couldn't possess that gun it's just that he got sent out into the world not being told and ended up having to take a plea and has this this thing on his record because he he just didn't know so i would be careful about granting or advising defendants to withdraw their hearing requests once they're in it that's that's why we warn them ahead of time we put a big block on the hearing request form. It's It's got red letters on it because we wanted them to understand the, the ramifications of requesting this hearing. Okay, I guess I, I haven't seen one of these hearing request forms that have big red boxes that say don't request a hearing or you'll lose your Second Amendment rights. But where, well, we, where, where is that? We, we don't word it exactly that way, but one of the court approved forms for uh, requesting a protective order hearing. Let me see if I can find it right here. Maybe, maybe it's not quite as red, but this, this is the paper form. There's some red text here. There's a big box right here that says notice to defendant. Certain conditions may cause the defendant to be prohibited from possessing firearms by federal law while an order of protection is in effect. And then we we list the intimate partners, affirmed or modified, and then suggest that they consult an attorney if they have a concern about that. So it's even in a, a shaded block. I'm, I'll Excuse go me? back and look at our form, but does it say that that's triggered by participating in a hearing? 
Uh, well, this this is the hearing request form. Uh, the conditions are defendant and plaintiff are intimate partners. The order of protection is affirmed or modified at a hearing of which the defendant received actual notice and had an opportunity to participate, even if the defendant fails to, to appear at the hearing. And then we tell them if you have questions about state and federal law, consult an attorney because the court cannot give legal advice. Anything like if you request a hearing, you could lose your gun rights. Well, we also have information on the defendant's guide sheet, which was served on the defendant with the order of protection. Um, let me look at that and see how we phrase that. Anyway, we're always trying to balance between giving advice. We, we have it more robustly on the defendant's guide sheet. We talk important note about hearings and firearms separately from Arizona law federal law, uh, pursuant to federal law, certain conditions may cause the defendant to be prohibited from possessing firearms while an order of protection is in effect. So then we give them that same information about the hearing and the, the possible effect of that. So there's the defendant's or the hearing request form. And we put that in red letters with a note to the defendant with an arrow pointing at that box where we're strongly encouraging them to read that information. Right. I, I could read that as an attorney and not figure out that my <laughs> <laughs> request for a hearing is going to trigger uh, Brady. But okay. That, that's a separate issue for a separate day. Well, and, 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 and again, uh, I mean, what we discovered in the eviction scenario is that people don't read what we send them anyway. Um, law enforcement and military people, for the most part, understand that you do not ask for a hearing if you've been served with an OP because of Brady. Uh, of course, the, the situation that we have, if you use the Arizona firearm prohibition at the ex parte, then you've taken that out of the defendant's hands altogether because it's in effect if they don't, I mean, that the Arizona law is in effect if they don't ask for a hearing and then Brady will be in effect if they ask for the hearing and lose. Right, and, and you could have the Arizona firearms prohibition and Brady running at the same time in the same, right. on the same order. So it, it just depends on the party relationship. All right, Kay, I've made you the presenter again so you can put your PowerPoint back up. Do, do we have any okay. other questions? Okay, no more questions on that. Okay. So again, we, we try to warn them as much as we can. We, we know people don't read. We do our best to encourage them to read. We spend a whole lot of time trying to make things as simple as possible for people. But in, in many aspects of life, we're, we're challenged because people don't read. We, we tried not to make this even the small print. We tried to draw it to their attention and we're, we're doing our best. All right, 
Now we're ready to move on to DV misdemeanors and firearms. Are, are we good with state firearm statute and Brady? And, and Judge Huberman did cut and paste the language out of that box into the chat box for those who couldn't read, read it when I displayed it. It's also in your packet on page 112 of your packet. Okay. So moving on to DV misdemeanors and firearms. In the, the same part of the Gun Control Act, now we need to look at 18 USC 922 G9. This, this is the provision that follows Brady. It says it shall be unlawful for any person who has been convicted in any court of a domestic violence, of a, a misdemeanor crime of domestic violence to possess any firearm or ammunition. This provision is, is called Lautenberg for short. It was named for Senator Frank Lautenberg of New Jersey, who uh, championed this particular law. Brady was named for Ronald Reagan's uh, chief of staff, who was seriously injured in the assassination attempt on Reagan. So that's, that's where these shortcut names come from. But now we're in the, the world of DV misdemeanors. So what is a domestic violence misdemeanor? Under the federal law, it has to be a very specific type of misdemeanor. And here again is, is where a federal prosecutor would look at the Arizona statute and decide whether it's a qualifying domestic violence misdemeanor. So it's a, a crime that's a misdemeanor under state, federal, or tribal law. And it has as an element the use or attempted use of physical force or threatened use of a, a deadly weapon. So not every domestic violence misdemeanor is going to be a qualifying misdemeanor that causes somebody to be a prohibited possessor under Lautenberg. So telephone harassment, things like that are, aren't going to qualify. It has to have this, this use of force element. And our, our group of parties is expanding a little bit here beyond what applies to Brady. So we could have a current or former spouse a parent of the victim or the guardian of the victim, a person with whom the victim shares a child in common, uh, cohabitants uh, such as a, a spouse, a parent, or guardian. So we've we've moved a little bit beyond the intimate partners, or a person similar similarly situated to a spouse, parent, or guardian of the victim. So there have been cases where folks argue that. Um, you know, I, I didn't live with the victim. I just spent the occasional night there. So that's where this last group comes in. The federal investigators would look at that situation, check out what clothes are hanging in the closet, how often they, they stay at each other's place, that sort of thing. So that's where that similarly situated tongue twister language applies. So again, not every DV misdemeanor that's on the books in Arizona is going to qualify for this. There are a couple other conditions that would apply. First, the defendant is, was represented by counsel or made a, a knowing, intelligent, voluntary waiver of the right to counsel in the, the misdemeanor case. And also, if the defendant was entitled to a jury trial, the case was either tried to a jury or the defendant made a, a knowing, intelligent, voluntary waiver of the right to trial. 
Lautenberg is in effect for the defendant's lifetime. This this is goes way beyond. Uh, it's for the lifetime unless the conviction has been expunged or set aside. We don't really have expungement uh, except for marijuana in Arizona. So you're looking at a set aside or the defendant has been pardoned or has had civil rights restored unless that pardon or restoration specifically excludes firearms. Uh, again, Lautenberg's in effect for life. There is no exception for military or law enforcement. So this lasts a lot longer than Brady. And then there's a notice that's available in the criminal bench book. The first sentence of this is, is the Lautenberg warning because you're, you're not necessarily pronouncing that Lautenberg applies. You're just giving the defendant notice that if you're convicted of a qualifying misdemeanor, you could be a prohibited possessor under 18 USC 922 BNG. And then it goes on the, the warning in the criminal bench book that describes subsequent convictions for domestic violence under state law. So that's in the criminal bench book, pages six and seven. Okay, so now you need to come up with 30 minutes of questions. So uh, how does a person find out if Lautenberg definitely applies? They would probably be best advised to consult with an attorney because the okay, attorney can take a look at whatever. How does what, an attorney whatever, determine whether? Well, the, the attorney could look at the DV conviction and let's say the DV conviction is for um, interfering with use of a telephone. It's like, okay, does that have as an element? Uh, let's look back at these elements. These are the elements, the use or attempted use of physical force or threatened use of a deadly weapon. So you have to examine the statute that's at issue and see if you can parse out these elements. So, you know, obstructing the use of a telephone in an emergency is probably not going to qualify because the statute wouldn't necessarily have these use of force elements in it. So somebody with, with some more time on their hands has probably gone through the 30 crimes that constitute domestic violence in Arizona and sorted out the ones that it would apply to and the ones that it wouldn't. Because obviously you're, you know, any that involve physical force are, are going to qualify. But a lot of the other ones, we have 30 different crimes that constitute domestic violence. A lot of those aren't going to apply. So this, the, the warning is kind of a blanket warning, like you could be, I'm not saying you are, but you could be. So check that out. We, we have things like assault and aggravated assault. Those would probably definitely qualify for, you know, the qualifying crime of domestic violence where um, telephone harassment, surreptitious photographing would not. I'll ask a question. It's maybe not directly related to the material, but the, what issues have you seen been developed, both good and bad, 
with the increased use of everything being done over uh, video appearances. Um, most uh, domestic violence victims now have an opportunity to, you know, go into AZ Point, type out everything at their house, um, come into court, or maybe just interact with the court over their their phone. Um, and then the hearing is frequently done uh, with the only person in the courtroom being the judge. Uh, what, what, if any, issues have you seen that are positive and maybe what, if any, issues have you seen that are perhaps negative that we need to work on? Well, I do know that recently the, the Chief Justice issued a, an administrative order with a list of hearing types and which ones are preferably done uh, remotely and which ones are, are done in person. I did review that and see that for ex parte orders of protection, a remote hearing video or telephonic would be appropriate where a contested hearing, it might be more appropriate to have that in person now that we've we've moved past, you know, I, I'm not gonna declare the pandemic over cause I'm not a medical person, but um, things, things seem to be easing up in that arena. One of the things that I, I will say about AZ Point is, is as difficult a project as that was um, and, and as massive as that project was, it, it was a godsend. We launched it January 1st of 2020 and the pandemic started closing everything down in March of 2020. So having that platform available made it possible for people to fill out their paperwork and then get easy access to the courts during the, the pandemic. I think many courts all over the nation have had different experiences with remote hearings and have taken away a lot of information from those, have found ways to improve that process. In, in some places, they may be rolling back to in-person hearings only, not necessarily in Arizona, but I've participated in different conversations with people across the country. So I think those types of hearings certainly increased access to courts, especially during a crisis that we were living through. I think it, it made it less stressful for plaintiffs to come to court because folks are often intimidated by courts. Some folks may have never been in a court or may have only been there for jury service. So it, it's very intimidating for them. Since the ex parte uh, situation is a little less stressful, I'm not gonna say it's not stressful because they're intimidated by people sitting higher than them and wearing black robes and the, the formality of the whole situation. There's, there's still some intimidation, but at least they don't have to physically get there. They can talk to you by telephone or video. So that really improved the access to courts. Some of the concerns, and, and we didn't see that in Arizona, but I, I know there was a hearing in Michigan where people were having some sort of protective order hearing, or it was a, a criminal matter related to domestic violence where it soon became apparent to court personnel that the people were in the same apartment. They, they were sitting in different rooms. So there were definitely concerns during the pandemic that people couldn't get out of the house to request help or that the person had returned to the house, you know, maybe at, at, with the permission of, of the victim 
and were living there. So there, there were definitely concerns about that. But I think at least at the ex parte hearing stage, remote hearings make things easier for plaintiffs. City of Phoenix has had a, a relationship with the Family Advocacy, Family Advocacy Center of the Phoenix Police Department for many years, where a person could go to the police department, the FAC, they had a, a video connection to the Phoenix City Court so that the, the paperwork, I think, was probably faxed back that far or at least emailed uh, so people didn't have to come over to the courthouse. But that kind of gave them plenty of practice before the pandemic hit because they were already doing that. One of the hospitals had already had a relationship with, um, I'm trying to think with which court, uh, where from the hospital emergency room, pre-pandemic, a person could request a protective order. So AZ Point made it simpler for people to put their paperwork together. One of our goals with AZ Point was to encourage them to take their time to, to try to craft better petitions because we know people are, are not necessarily good at writing out their petitions. They're not necessarily clear about what happened. They tend to focus in, in their trauma on things that don't seem as relevant to you as it seemed to them. I found in, in representing people in, in domestic violence court back in New Jersey that victims don't tend to tell their stories in a nice linear fashion. And I probably traumatized one of my first clients by trying to understand why she did the things that she did that were not in a nice linear fashion that I could present in court. So there's there's that aspect of it too. So we wanted them to take their time. I know a lot of people still didn't take their time, but we really wanted them to be ready for the fact that that order of protection was gonna go out for service very quickly because we had to undo a, a culture, a law that we'd had in place since the 1990s where they'd had to get it served themselves. And some people took it home and stuck it under the mattress just in case they needed it. Um, Sometimes defendants couldn't be found, but we wanted them also to be well aware that under the current statute, the court is going to send that order out for service very quickly. So there, I think there were a lot of lessons learned during the pandemic, but I, I think at least um, for ex parte hearings, the remote process is here to stay. It, you know, it, it saved people from having to go find parking spaces, look for buildings, especially if they were downtown you know, where there, there are lots of buildings, they don't know where they're supposed to go. So that part made it simpler, but there's definitely value in, in having both parties in your courtroom for a contested hearing because you're assessing credibility, you're seeing the, the glances that go back and forth, that sort of thing. All of that information is really helpful in a courtroom because you can read people's actions a lot better there. You certainly can't do that on a, a telephone and even video, you're you're trying to watch too many things at the same time. So uh, did I answer hey, your I, question or go ahead, Judge. Well I, I was just gonna ask back back to the firearms when and when I know Surprise is getting ready to launch a program where there would be actually some type of follow-up on whether or not the defendant is 
turns in his firearms when he's ordered to turn in his firearms. I think about 90% of the time, maybe that's unfair, but a, a large percentage of the time, a judge orders someone to turn in their firearms and, and nothing happens. There's, there's no follow-up on that at all. And I was wondering what your thoughts are on that situation. That has been a huge gap in the state statutes as long as I've lived in Arizona because the statute requires the defendant to turn over these firearms, but then there is no follow-up. We, we don't necessarily know when the defendant is going to be served with the order. So, uh, you know, there's, there's that unknown fact. We don't know what firearms the defendant possesses, if any. So, the program that Surprise is, is working on is modeled after one that was implemented in Phoenix between the Phoenix City Court and the Phoenix Police Department, where additional papers are served on the defendant. And that is additional information saying that you have to, within 24 hours of service of this order, transfer these firearms to Phoenix uh, Police Department or you have to, to file an affidavit saying that you don't possess firearms. So they're, they're attempting to fill that gap that's there in the statute because you're, you're correct, the statute just kind of leaves everything hanging out there as far as what happened to these guns. It, it's still, you know, still not foolproof because Arizona law prohibits anybody from compiling any kind of registry of firearms People can purchase firearms um, at gun shows without any kind of background check or anything like that. But this is a, at least an attempt to convey to defendants that this is what the judge ordered and that this is what you're supposed to do. So I know that the, the judge at Surprise City Court has been in close contact with Judge Bayardi, who's now at Scottsdale because it was Judge Bayardi's efforts that got that going in Phoenix. So I, I think Phoenix has had success with, with seeing firearms surrendered. Um, I don't know how much uh, because I, I don't know if they're tracking that information, but at least it's an attempt to try to put some, some teeth behind that provision. I still don't know what you can do to a defendant. I, I've heard from plaintiffs who've gone round and round when defendants don't turn in firearms because prosecutors, you know, they have to pick up the ball and actually investigate and, and prosecute somebody if they didn't turn in firearms. And they, they've, plaintiffs have really found very little satisfaction in that piece of the statute. And, and just to, uh, uh, Judge Keegan, you, you first. I'd just like to clarify a little misnomer there. Uh, if you go to a gun show, most of the gun sales do require FFL background checks. It is only the private sale between six individuals that does not allow that. And that doesn't happen, have to take place in a gun show, it can take place anywhere. Most of the vendors there are FFL firearm uh, sellers. And anybody that sells more than seven firearms a year is required by law to become an FFL. So it's just going to a gun show doesn't mean you get a gun without a background check. Almost all of them go through a background check. Thank you. 
All right, thank you. Uh, and uh, just to, to clarify the Phoenix program and the proposed surprise program, just so everyone understands, does not apply to Brady. That uh, applies only to um, to the Arizona firearm law. Uh, so um, it, 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 and it does put an extra uh, burden on the process server to ensure that they have the additional paperwork. The person is required to, to file an affidavit with the court. Um, saying they turned it, turned their firearms into the police, or they don't own firearms, and it does depend on police and prosecutors being willing willing to follow up for violations of that. So, any other questions on that? Because if not, I, I do want to back up to the amended petition question. Any other questions? Uh, th this is your opportunity. We have the Arizona expert here. So any other questions on uh, firearm uh, for Brady, the Arizona firearms, Lautenberg? Okay, Kay, I want to back up to the amended uh, petition because that is in Rule 38, which is in uh, which is for contested hearings. Uh, so if you have an ex parte uh, hearing, um, that is contested. That's not under Rule 38. Do you have to allow the plaintiff to amend a petition at an ex parte pre-issuance hearing? Well, it wouldn't be ex parte at a pre-issuance hearing. Excuse me. At, at a pre-issuance hearing. That's a, a, a good question. Arguably, yeah, that, that's my reaction. Yes, that was my reaction when I was asked it because Rule yeah. 38 applies to contested hearings, and the, uh, the pre-issuance hearing is not under Rule 38. It would be kind of odd that you would allow someone to amend at a contested hearing, but not at a pre-issuance hearing. But there's no specific authority for allowing the amendment at the pre-issuance hearing. That's that's true. I mean, you you have the elements of a contested hearing present at a con, at a pre-issuance hearing because the defendant has been given notice and an opportunity to participate. Um, the the difference is that you haven't yet issued an order. Where in a contested hearing, you've issued an ex parte hearing or an ex parte order. So you you have a petition with a, a definite cutoff time, you know, the day the person filed that petition and the court heard it. It's a little fuzzier with a pre-issuance hearing because you're you're correct, that's not in a rule. I can put that on my list of questions to which I need to find answers. Uh, have you had that experience where people want to amend at a pre-issuance hearing? I think you can make a strong argument that Rule 38D only applies to contested hearings. Yeah, I've got Rule 38, 38 in front of me, and it specifically defines what a contested hearing as one that's uh, it's already been issued and the defendants requested it. So that wouldn't argue, you know, it, it, there's no specific authority allowing. Of course, there's nothing in procedure for how to conduct a pre-issuance hearing, period. Right. Yes, pre-issuance hearings are, are these fuzzy things because, as I said, the statute technically says that if you're going to deny the order or the petition, then you can set this additional hearing that they don't even call a, a pre-issuance hearing. That's just the shortcut that we use for it. Right. 
Um, it says if the court denies the requested relief, it may schedule a further hearing within 10 days with reasonable notice to the defendant. That's that's what a pre-issuance hearing is in the world of 133602. All right, does so, any else have any other questions? If not, I'll ask Kay another question and she may never come back uh, to assist <laughs> us again. Because my next question again uh, is because there's nothing really guiding how you do a pre-issuance hearing. Uh, if you grant an order, uh, if you grant a protective order at a pre-issuance hearing, what is the remedy for a defendant? Is it to file an appeal or is it to request a contested hearing? It is just rather would... odd because under the statute, the answer appears to be that you that the defendant's remedy is to uh, request a contested hearing, which you've just done. I, I would say that they would need to file an appeal because they've had their their notice and opportunity to participate in that pre-issuance hearing. Uh, I would argue that they've already had their their opportunity to speak because otherwise, um, you know, it, it's it's still a further hearing under the statute, but yeah, you're right. It's it's another messy area. But appeals, Rule 42, um, an ex parte order is not appealable. Rather, a defendant may contest by requesting a hearing. So yeah, that's kind of circular. And and but then would you at, at an expert, oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, the Judicial Conduct Commission uh, wrote up a pro tem uh, for saying it's our policy that you appeal, that not that you request a hearing. And the Conduct Commission did say the remedy is to require a hearing. Oh, okay, I'd be interested in, in reading that. Because arguably under the appeals rule, it says an ex parte protective order is not appealable. Um, at a pre-issuance hearing, you, you don't have any order that's in effect yet. It's, it's different than when you have an ex parte order that's been issued and then you're in a contested hearing that you know you affirm or modify that here, or order and then the defendant can appeal that. So pre-issuance hearings are, are very squishy if that's a legal term. All right, Wish any other me. any other questions, Judge Huberman? Well, just what you was talking about the pre-issuance hearings. I, I had, you know, we have one judge on duty per day. So when the two parties come in to request a hearing, they go before the same judge. And I had two competing orders where each of the parties was requesting um, to be to be granted exclusive use of the home. And so we just came up with the idea that <laughs> that they should accept service, and we held a hearing as a pre-issuance for both at the same time. But I guess, in your words, it was squishy. 
um, sometimes the the logistics for us. I mean, I I assume that in the rural court courts it's even worse um, because here one of them could have gone to a city court, but they both came mm -hmm. to our court. Um, and and I'm you know pressed into a situation where it's. I mean, I felt it was unfair to issue the order for one of them without hearing the other one who was already there that clearly had their own request. So I don't know if anyone has a better suggestion. Well, I think you could conduct both of those hearings together as long as they each have their own case number and as long as the, the judge considers each petition as a, a separate item. So you, you might have, you know, husband and wife there you have to look at each of their petitions and, and get their testimony and, and that sort of thing and decide whether both are believable and whether you should issue two protective orders or whether one is more credible than the other and you should just issue one. And then if you have something like exclusive use of the home, you're, you're going to have to make a call on who's going to get that. So you can just make that call because that was my issue was the exclusive use. Yeah, that, that would be a, a difficult one because, you know, each one of them, especially if they're married or have, you know, ownership rights to that property are, are going to argue that they should be the one in possession of the house. I, I guess you might need to look at other factors like, you know, are, are there children who's the primary caretaker of the child if you find that both equally deserve to, to have exclusive use of the home? Um, you know, does the other person have a place to go? Do they have resources? Are are they going to take the children with them? Are they going to take the dogs and the cats? There, there's always a lot of facts that have to be explored, and things aren't always as simple as we'd like them to be. Two oh two seven eight. Here is that. Uh, uh, judicial uh, misconduct uh, letter uh, and so the, the conduct mission in that instance the judge denied a request for a hearing after a pre-issuance hearing saying in our court you appeal those and the conduct commission said well whatever the court policy is the statute does say that that you that you do request a hearing um, a contested hearing so Yeah, I would probably disagree with them because I think they there was a contested hearing already. Both both parties had their say, um, so I'm I'm not sure what you would get from a second contested hearing other than a rerun of the first contested hearing, maybe with some embellishments. Well, which I would have agreed with last year that it was a rerun of the original, but now that they can amend the uh, their petition at the contested hearing, now you can arguably say the contested hearing would be different because the petitioner can amend. Mm -hmm. That's true. That's a good point. All right. So Any might make that more interesting. <laughs> All right. Any uh, last questions, uh, comments, observations for Kay? All right. Uh, as always, the uh, materials are going to be in judicial resources. The CodeJet certificate is the last page of the materials. 
Uh, I want to thank Kay for uh, today's presentation. I hope you'll come back. Uh, I know we, <laughs> we hit you with some questions that, that were no. uh, some tough ones. Uh, and and uh, glad to hear that, that, that you may be working on some petitions. <laughs> so, all right. Well, and just Kay, a reminder that, you know, you were going to look into those issues with the language between the the forms and the AO language as to the text messaging and those kind of things. Right, right. Um, well, yeah, it's your your all Maricopa County Justice Courts. What what you see in the we have a couple of visitors here, but yeah, yeah. Your your courts use a DV prompt system that is is a a system that was created exclusively for the Maricopa County Courts. So when you're looking at your screen in the DV prompt system, you're seeing uh, some language where you're prohibiting contact. It, it says electronic, and then it says email, fax, and text messaging. But actually on the approved form, it just says email and fax. So what you're seeing on your screen from your DV prompt system isn't the same as, as the form, but we have that on the list of things to to change on the order of protection form because that form was developed originally in 2007 and it right. says email and fax. I don't know that today's uh, young people know what a fax machine is. And clearly we, we need to update the language on there to include electronic. Um, you know, there's also instant messaging. Try to think of a, of, a more generic way to to say that so that we don't have to amend that constantly on that form but yes we do need to keep up with technology all right well thank you mm -hmm. all right thank you everybody thank you Kay. you're welcome thank you <laughs>